You sent me this article that researchers found that dodgeball teaches children an unethical system of oppression. The Canadian Society for the Study of Education at the Congress of the Humanities and Social Sciences. First off, who in the world named that? And they claim that it legalizes bullying. They even talk about how that picking the teams is mildly embarrassing. You're talking to a person, Reed, that was always picked last. Yeah, and you turned out fine. Well, apparently I've been systematically oppressed. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and digital patient engagement strategies for hospitals, healthcare systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on the digital tools, solutions, strategies, and processes that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information and have fun along the way. And now, here are your hosts, Reed Smith and Chris Boyer. And welcome back to episode number 123 of Touchpoint. I am Reed Smith, joined as always by Chris Boyer. How's it going? Pretty good, Reed. Welcome to you. You are the podcast recorder en route. You're on travel, I guess. Is that the right way to say it? Yeah, I'm uh, reporting on location. I'm in the middle of a transition, both personally and professionally. That sounded weird. My family life is fine. (laughs) That's what this is about. But we were moving across the country, I guess is my point, as a family. More about that in a future episode. But yeah, so I am recording this episode from the square in Lockhart, Texas, right down the street from Black's Barbecue and Smitty's. Yeah, this is like the barbecue capital. Good place to be. Yeah, back for another week. And I'm excited about this week's topic, Reed. We're going to get into some, something that we've always kind of talked about. I mean, you and I have talked about this for years now. Bias, data, ethics, I guess the, the trifecta of issues when it comes to marketing. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. And I think from a bias standpoint, in most cases or in a lot of cases, you don't necessarily realize that's what's happening. And I guess that's kind of the point of it. So before we get into that, though, a quick plug for the website, touchpoint.health. Rate, review, subscribe over at Apple Podcast or wherever you happen to be listening is super helpful to us and all the shows and show hosts here on the Touchpoint Networks. This should be a really cool episode. We're going to take a brief break and we'll be right back. Using powerful AI-driven algorithms, Loyal's Guide helps patients along every step of their journey, from choosing a doctor and finding the nearest location to signing up for an event or clinical trial. Whether you are using Guide's chatbot, live chat, or the powerful combination of both, Loyal's engaging platform integrates seamlessly into your system, maximizes efficiency, and improves patients' digital experience. To learn more or schedule a demo, visit them online at loyalhealth.com forward slash demo. That is loyalhealth.com forward slash demo. So Reed, as I mentioned, I'm really excited about getting started in today's episode because when it comes to people that are involved in marketing, digital marketing, content marketing, we all have these biases when we come into the workplace that whether we're aware of them or not really influence the the things that we do. Absolutely. Maybe let's talk for just a second on where, where that comes from. 
you know, where, where does the bias originate from? You know, you can think about things in your personal life, you know, even small things, you know, you grew up going to McDonald's and so you're not a fan of Burger King. You know, those are simple uh, examples, but some of it becomes repetition or history or, you know, those types of things, right? Biases is a very natural thing to do. We as humans, we have a, a great list of biases that uh, that really influence how we do things and how we show up in life and how we show up professionally. By the way, it's not just us as healthcare professionals. Even our customers have biases. And that's to many people, when you're looking at marketing, they tend to look at those biases to try to, you know, to be more effective with their marketing, leveraging some of these biases. You know, the consumer obviously, you know, has a bias. They want a physician that uh, sees patients in this type of a way or treats in this type of a manner or has mid-levels as part of their practice or maybe not or, you know, whatever it may be. There's there's things that, again, through our own experiences and things like that, we, we get to a place that that's, you know, what we expect and want because we assume that's the right way to do it or best way to do it. So a little bit later in the episode, we're going to have this really great interview with someone that I kind of uh, am a fanboy of. I think you are too. Yep. But I think maybe what we could do is talk about cognitive bias for a little bit because it's just so present there. I think it's it'd be interesting for us to dive into it. And of course, when we start talking about cognitive bias, we have to understand what it actually means. And so if we turn to our favorite website for definitions, which is Wikipedia. Wikipedia obviously has, you know, definitions, but we've also got some great examples of what, you know, different cognitive biases may look like or be. Uh, But in short, a cognitive bias is a a systemic pattern of deviation from the norm or rationale in judgment and are often studied in psychology and behavioral economics. I like that. Patterns of deviation from the norm or rationality and judgment. And uh, oftentimes, these biases really influence how uh, how we do things, how we look at things, how we do research, etc. And Wikipedia has in this link that we'll include in the show notes, it has a list of, it looks like hundreds of different biases that are out there. They group them into decision-making, belief, and behavioral biases. The other one is social biases, and then memory errors and bias. So before we actually get into some of those that affect our lives, it might be fun to kind of highlight a couple of these in the list that, that you might find to be kind of interesting. Did you see one on here that's that's interesting? So I like the Ben Franklin effect. Hmm. I didn't know that that was a thing, which is defined as a person who has performed a favor for someone is more likely to do another favor for that person than they would be if they had received a favor from the person. Did you get that? Okay, wait. Performed a favor for someone is more likely to do another favor than they would if they had received a favor back from that person? Yeah. How is that Ben Franklin? I don't understand the time Ben Franklin. (laughs) I don't know. That's an interesting. I don't know. The one I clued in on is uh, one that I think it makes sense. It's called the Ikea effect, Reed, which is a tendency for people to place a disproportionately high value on objects that they partially assembled themselves, such as furniture from Ikea, regardless of the quality of the end result. (laughs) (laughs) Regardless of the quality. That is the best. (laughs) It is. 
Uh, what about the less is better effect? The tendency to prefer a smaller set to a larger set judged separately, but not jointly. I don't know who came up with all these. Like, where did all this come from? Um, <laughs> there, there certainly are people that track biases, I, I suppose. That's what they do. The one that I really like that actually I heard on a different podcast is the Dunning-Kruger effect. That's the tendency for unskilled individuals to overestimate their own ability and the tendency for experts to underestimate their own ability. And then just humility, or is that like a different thing? <laughs> well, there's humility on one end, but those for people that are underqualified to overestimate their ability is what I like. I know a lot of people like that. Or what about this one just seems a little wishy-washy to me, but moral luck, the tendency for people to ascribe greater or lesser moral standing based on the outcome of an event. So we're, we're just going to wait to see what happens to decide where that falls on that scale. Well, I guess when I speeded through the school zone, I didn't get caught. So that's a good thing to do. <laughs> what in the world? There's a lot of these, Reed, right? I mean, like I mentioned, there's decision-making, belief, and behavioral biases. There are social biases, and there mm-hmm, are even mm-hmm. uh, memory errors and biases. In our world in marketing, we have run into a variety of these uh, different biases. And so I wanted to kind of highlight a few that we could probably pinpoint to things that we do and talk about some of the challenges around that. What do you think? Yeah, that sounds great. Okay. So the first one is knowledge bias. And that's where we assume we know what our customers want without asking them or verifying it. Well, sure. It's because we do know. (laughs) That's a very common one. And People may excuse that away as just, we, we can't do focus screws. We have to go with kind of this assumptive nature, right, of, you know, what we think we know. I've had a child before, therefore I know, you know, what new parents may need when they come into the hospital. Exactly. Or, you know, I suffer from migraines, so migraines must be a very, you know, troublesome problem within my community. Maybe that's not a good example because migraines do pervade in society a lot. But still, you know, I mean, I think that a lot of us, we kind of go into things assuming we know what our customers' needs are and what their wants are. Mm -hmm. We don't even go through and try to validate that with anything. And and you may be right. It is maybe a, maybe it's an inherent bias against focus groups, if that's really what it is. (laughs) Let's go back to that list. I'm sure some, there's some focus group related bias on there. (laughs) The next one is a confirmation bias. And again, this is an easy one to fall into. And I know I've done it many times, but it's, (laughs) I've done it many times, ironically. We've done this before and achieved the same results. So we always will. Oh, yeah. This always works for X, Y, or Z. Therefore, it will always work for X, Y, or Z. We don't give any room for the idea that like it might not work (laughs) kind of a thing. Believe me, using benchmarking data and past performance and things like that are are not bad things. But just, again, the assumptive nature of it that it will always turn out this way. Yeah, we promote primary care by putting out pay-per-click that drives them to a landing page that allows them to select, you know, a location or whatever it might be. And we just do that and we always put this certain budget to it. It's always going to work. We just set it up, let it go, and we'll check in on it in a year. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that has happened so many times in my experience. And then when suddenly you go back and you look at it, you go like, wait, there's variant in that performance. What's the first thing we think about? Why would things change if this always worked? Well, we usually go, well, maybe there's seasonality involved, right? That's that's always our like excuse. Mm. Well, you know, it was the beginning of the year, so people really weren't looking online for this or whatever. It was heart month. You know, I mean, people are only looking for hard stuff during heart month. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Another one, I like this one, the curse of knowledge bias. We assume the customer knows things they do not know. They call it the curse of knowledge bias. I mean, how often does this show up in the work that we do, particularly from doctors, right? Yep, absolutely. You know, because we're going to need you to go down, see an MFM, because likely, you know, with a expecting multiples, you're going to be in the ICU, you know, the NICU, if you will. And uh, yeah, so we go down this path of, you know, the medical jargon, the acronyms, uh, and everybody's going, what, an, an MFM, what, is that like a place or what, what's an MFM? I remember when I first got my, when I got my job in healthcare uh, in 2003 as a director of marketing at a hospital, I remember sitting in about two meetings and I was like, I have no idea what just happened. Like no clue, like, you know, with the amount of acronyms that were just used, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with any of this or why I'm here. Oh my gosh. Websites full and full of like very in-depth technical information that may or may not actually tell a story that is, you know, interesting to the person reading it, to the, particularly to the customer, because they're just lost in this medical jargonese. And then, then they throw in words that try to make it simplified, right? They're like, well, then you enter the continuum of care. Like, what does that mean? It's really interesting, you know, this curse of knowledge. It's just a weird bias that I see all the time. Yeah, it's a multidisciplinary approach. <laughs> it's comprehensive while we're at it. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's two more that kind of relate to one another. You want to talk about those? Yeah, so the expectation bias, so the, the, which is just the tendency to, de- to believe, certify, and ultimately publish data that agrees with the expectations. It's like, aha, I knew it, you know, kind of thing. You know, you're you're cherry picking data. Is that fair? Is that what that means? And then you've got the availability cascade, which I just like saying that availability cascade. I'm going to figure out how to work that into something. That would be a good band name, I think. (laughs) Availability cascade. Is that like a journey cover band? Yeah, exactly. Or something. <laughs> anyway, so availability cascade is a self-reinforcing process in which a collective belief gains more and more plausibility through its increasing repetition in public discourse or repeating something enough that it becomes true. Right. <laughs> it's like the wives tell effect. Uh, you know. You know what I mean? I'm not sure more of this is going to help this burn or cut, you know, but it's just, it just gets perpetuated over time. And again, through, you know, you say it enough and it becomes true kind of scenario. A sad part of that, a dark part of that would be, you know, the, what, how people feel about vaccinations or the anti-vaccination movement. That really is a, a darker side of that. But here's one that looks into this a little bit differently. And I heard it just today. They say that mothers make all the healthcare decisions in the family. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that's expectation bias? I think so to some degree. Yeah, I don't know. That that's a tough one because I do think obviously that some of the you know healthcare decision making does lean that direction. But if you think about like as my parents get older, for example, well, I'm going to be making a lot of those decisions at some point. Not 
my mom about herself or not my wife about her mother-in-law, you know, whatever, like I'm, I'm going to be, you know, the one making all those decisions or, you know, my brother who's special needs after my parents are gone, it's going to be up to me to make the, the decisions for him. While that is true in a lot of cases and probably a lot of consumer driven service lines like pediatrics, OB, things like that, you could probably still hold true to some of that. I think just that blanket statement is probably overused. Yeah, and it may reflect a a bias. Let's get into a couple more biases right after we take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsor. Are you struggling with online reputation management? Binary Health Analytics provides healthcare systems, hospitals, and physician practices a complete view into managing patient feedback from online ratings and reviews and especially surveys. It continuously mines feedback for sediment, uncovering timely and actionable insights. Its management tools help turn these insights into an opportunity to increase patient engagement, manage reputation, and improve patient experience. To learn more about Binary Health Analytics, visit Binary Fountain online at binaryfountain.com. That is binaryfountain.com. All right. So the next one on the list, we we had some great ones around the uh, expectation bias uh, and whatnot before the break. But the next one on the list, bandwagon bias, the tendency to believe things work because suddenly everyone's talking about it, doing it. Uh-huh. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I was just recently at a healthcare conference, and after you go to a healthcare conference, there's usually a topic or two that everybody's talking about. Ah, uh, yes. And so they come back and they say, you know what we need to do? We need to do this because everybody's doing it, and that's the way we got to do it. So we let's go build an app because everybody else is building an app. Yeah, oh, let's let's all measure ROI because everybody's doing it, you know, kind of a thing. <laughs> well, some so. of these things are good, <laughs> right? Yeah. But – I'm just kidding. Still, it's like everybody's doing it, so I got to be part of it. That's a big bias that we do. It's I sometimes call that me too marketing. Like everybody else is doing it, so we have to do it too. I think some of it is that that fear of missing out uh, a little bit too, right? Like I'm going to get left behind if I'm not doing the most innovative thing like this other place is. So maybe we could call bandwagon bias really FOMO bias. What do you yes, think? Yes, FOMO bias, something like that. Okay, well, have you heard of the halo effect? It's a cognitive bias that influences our overall impression of a brand based on previous experiences we've had with them. Okay. That happens a lot, doesn't it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, this, and again, I've given this example numerous times on this podcast, but again, I go back to the days of of working at the hospital uh, back in the early 2000s. And it was in a small town in Central Texas and hearing people in the community say, oh, I'd never go to that hospital. Oh, my gosh. Why? Like, these were like friends, you know, people that I got to know in the community. It was like, why, why not? This happened to my grandfather when he was at blah, 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 blah. Oh, when was that? Oh, let's see. That had to be, was it, it was like either 83 or 84. You know, I'm like, like 1983. Like, that's what we're judging off of, you know. So, yeah, I mean, it happens continually. We sometimes use that, like I mentioned before, we sometimes use that to our benefit in marketing, a big drive towards publishing consumer ratings on our websites and how other people feel what those experiences are. 
is related somehow to the halo effect, right? Because other people want to see what other people's experiences were so they can halo that effect on what they think their experience might be. Hmm. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. Next on the list is irrational escalation. The tendency to dismiss or ignore new research evidence if it happens to override or undermine the decision that has already been made. Hmm. So this happens so frequently in healthcare. Sometimes you don't even notice it. I remember once I was working with a health system and they said, look, we're, we're trying to promote this freestanding ED in our marketplace and it's just not working. The marketing's not taking effect. Through the pro- work that, that I did, it was market research. I came back and said, well, the market research says that there's too many freestanding EDs and urgent care centers in the marketplace. Mm. You don't have a competitive edge. And they said to me, well, no, we already invested this much money into it. We have to make the marketing work. And they cannot break themselves free from that. That's irrational escalation, right? Which I get. It. I mean, I get it, right? We're committed. I don't, we don't have a choice. We've got to make this thing work. And it's like, you know, I'm sorry. That's not the way marketing works. <laughs> I can't be like, okay, well, I'll try harder. Like, that's just not how that works. And, and you see the same thing with like, you know, the ER wait times on the billboards, you know, things like that, that again, some of these are a cascading effect. We talked about the availability cascade earlier, but you go from like a knowledge bias or a confirmation bias into a bandwagon or a FOMO type effect, which ultimately fuels this irrational escalation. Oh my gosh. So now we're linking multiple biases together. (laughs) This is getting really complicated, Reed. (laughs) Yeah. Let's hit a couple more that, that are more common and pervasive here, too, just for understanding. Have you heard about social desirability bias? where That's where people make decisions in a group or with an observer that they won't make in real life. Mm. And that happens all the time in focus groups. Is this like the jury effect? Which I think I just made up. I'm not sure that's really a thing. But but you do. You get in a big group, right? And it's like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, that's what I would do too. <laughs> kind of a thing. Like, no, you wouldn't. That's interesting. It's kind of like that peer pressure piece, right? Another one is framing uh, similar information uh, will yield different conclusions if it's presented in different ways. So, again, those kind of piggyback off of each other a little bit too. And moreover, that one we can use, uh, framing is used often when you cherry pick your data, where you're presenting data in one way, or you're presenting data in a, in a different way. And you're saying, hey, because of this, it could result in this. And there's another bias that's close to that too, which is called anchoring bias, where it's a tendency to rely heavily on one bit of information over the rest. Have you ever done that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Everybody will grab the piece that makes their case. Right. I, I got a great example. Recently, we were testing to see how effective our blog posts were, people reading the blogs. And what we did is we were looking at bounce rate because, you know, bounce rate is an indicator. And then we found out that it has a 92% bounce rate. So clearly that means that our blog posts don't work, right? Well, I was paying too heavy of a reliance on that as being uh, an in, in, intuition onto the effectiveness of that of that page. What I ended up doing is looking at the remaining 8% that didn't bounce to figure out exactly what their time on page was, what their page source was, where they were coming from. And what I found out is that 92% bounce rate was because we were driving 
ads, people with advertising Mm. to those pages. And people from ads weren't responding, but organically, these blog posts are killing it. They're like, people are spending five minutes on them. They're linking through, they're making selections. But again, I was placing too heavy of an importance on, you know, that one particular bit of information. And I framed the conclusion in a different way. Some of this stuff changes over time. You mentioned bounce rate, and I think that's an interesting one where if you are driving ads, you're going to have a high bounce rate because they're entering and exiting the site at the same place. And typically you're going to get a lot more traffic, much of which is unqualified, depending on how the ads are run. Again, you have to kind of change your expectation of some of those. You know, we, we covered, uh, I guess it was been about a 10 different biases that occur quite frequently and that we see at least you and I have seen often in the hollowed halls of healthcare, right? When we are doing uh, marketing, I think what's important here is to be aware of these biases and how they may actually influence how we're perceiving things. And it's in, in the very least, it's good to take a little check to say, Hey, wait a second, let's check on this to make sure that our biases are not influencing how we're reporting out on successes or how we think our digital marketing is performing. Really, the the biggest takeaway for me as I've kind of gone through this list, and even just the list of all the absurd ones, not that they're, well, they are absurd, but (laughs) (laughs) it is just to be reminded and thoughtful around the idea that these biases do exist. And kind of as time goes, make sure, you know, be able to kind of press pause for a second and say, am I making this decision with a bias in place? Because I don't think we can, get, I don't think we can get completely away from all these. I, I think that would be almost impossible, especially the knowledge and the confirmation bias piece. Yeah, in my experience, you're right, Reed. I don't think we can ever walk away from these. And there is knowledge bias right there. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but no. <laughs> so what's interesting about bias is that it's everywhere, and it's in places that you don't even think about. Now we talked about some where we as humans are intervening and actually making our own interpretations, enforcing as healthcare professionals our own influences on how we're structuring campaigns and how we're measuring campaigns, and even how some customers may be using their own biases to make decisions. One thing that surprised me actually surfaced in an interview we're about to throw to, and that is with a person that I've, I've listened to for many years. I think you have too, Christopher Penn, the co-host of Marketing Over Coffee. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of Marketing Over Coffee. And, and I think for those in the marketing space, especially those that deal with technology in the marketing space, it's well worth your listen. Uh, he and John Wall both uh, have a wealth of knowledge, but Christopher Penn ends up giving a lot of very tactical things that you can go and do uh, without buying software or buying anything. So it's it's some really, really cool ways uh, to pick up some interesting tips to track, to monitor, to measure, to me- you know, all that kind of stuff. It's anyway, just just really cool takeaways from people that have been in it a long time. Well, so Christopher Penn and I connected, and I initially started the interview, we talked about artificial intelligence and machine learning, because that's a big part of what he does. He started a business doing this, and it's really interesting. Give it a listen to hear. But then he lapsed into that artificial intelligence and machine learning itself has 
data bias mm. and how that can dramatically influence how these systems actually are configured and what they actually can do. And then he even touches a little bit about ethics. So it's a really great listen. So why don't we give a pause here and uh, we'll be right back with hearing from Christopher Penn. At Health Grades, Better Health gets a head start. They help millions of consumers each month to find and schedule appointments with their provider of choice. With their scheduling solutions and advanced analytics applications, they partner with more than 500 hospitals across the country to cultivate new patient relationships, improve patient access, and build customer loyalty. To learn more, visit them online at healthgrades.com. That is healthgrades.com. All right. Welcome back to the Ask the Experts section of our podcast. And today I am talking with someone that I've been listening to on another podcast for well over a decade now. And I'm trying, and as I mentioned to him earlier, I'm going to try not to fanboy too much when I talk to him today. But that's Christopher Penn. Which would you go by? Do you go by Chris or Christopher? If there's another Chris in the room, I go by Christopher. Otherwise, it's Chris. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so happy to have you on the show today. I would love for you to share a little bit of your background for our audience, for those people who may not know who you are. Sure. Uh, as you referenced, I am the co-host of Marketing Over Coffee, the uh, podcasts that we've been doing marketing podcasting since 2007. Uh, I am the chief data scientist and co-founder of Trust Insights, a data science consulting firm for marketers to help marketers make more out of their data. And uh, I'm originally an IT person by trade and uh Ended up in marketing uh, in the early 2000s when I joined a startup. I was the CIO, the CTO, and the guy who cleaned the restroom on Friday because I was employee number three. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, over time, uh, technology became marketing, marketing became technology, and here we are. And here we are. So tell us a little bit about Trust Insights. Sure. We're a little over a year old. Prior to that, my CEO and I worked together at a public relations firm. And we were trying to bring marketing technology to the PR world, to a variety of different clients, particularly some in, in highly regulated spaces like healthcare and energy and stuff. And uh, we got to a point where the focus and the direction we wanted to go with our careers was different than the way that the, the PR agency world was going. We really wanted to focus on machine learning, AI, uh, advanced analytics, and how do you basically how do you get more bang for the buck out of the data that you've got? Because we, as marketers and as companies, we end up spending enormous amounts of time and money collecting data, and then we do the equivalent of stuff in a desk drawer and forget about it. Like, why why do we bother collecting it in the first place? That's one of the biggest challenges, right? I often say that digital marketers today are often data rich but information poor. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. They're information poor, they're analytics poor, they're insights poor. And as a mm. result, you get my least favorite phrase of all, which is, mm. well, this is the way we've always done it. Well, <laughs> okay, but it, it, you're also, you know, if your competitors have figured out a better way of doing it and you're doing it the way you've always done it, you're going to get your uh, backside handed to you. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, in this day and age with all the digital tools that are available at our at our hands and our disposal, it's no wonder that artificial intelligence, machine learning has, has grown so much. But the application of those in marketing seems to be a little bit lagging in other areas of the business. Is that fair to say? 
It is. And the reason for that is that a lot of marketers rely on uh, SaaS, uh, software as a service uh, applications, everything from Google Analytics to our marketing automation software, our CRM. It's all, you know, in the cloud and such which is fine for convenience. It is fine for, uh, you know, low maintenance costs and things like that. But because of that, these vendors who we work with have an incentive to keep uh, what are called compute costs low, which means do uh, things as quickly as possible for a great user experience and do things as least processor intensive as possible. And that means that things like advanced machine learning, advanced AI, very, very heavy processing tasks are things that don't find their way into their products until for a very long time until you know compute costs drop below a certain point because we've gotten so used to you know open the app or open the window or whatever click the button and and there's your result right and we get we get upset we get upset when something like takes 3 seconds well some of these machine learning models depending on what you're doing and how you're doing them can take 10 15 minutes sometimes couple hours sometimes to do its processing and there're not a lot of folks i know who have the patience to say oh, i'm just going to get this job running and then i'm going to go and uh, take a you know 2 hours to do something else and come back for my report but you have to do that if you want to make use of the of the best technology available and also in part, and not to get too techy, but we kind of have to, is like oftentimes the digital marketing tech stack is not as integrated or interoperable, at least in our space within hospitals and health systems. Do you find that to be case, the case in other organizations? Oh, it's it's an, it's an epidemic, uh, if you'll forgive the use of the word, uh, across <laughs> all forms of marketing, because what we've done as marketers, and understandably so, sensibly so in many cases, we have gone out and tried to build a basket of best of breed tools to solve our organization's individual problems based on what we know of the space and what we can afford. The problem is all those point solutions don't really talk to each other. And so we're left with a, you know, a piles of individual tools that we don't have a coherent way of putting together. It's like if you could imagine uh, a house where uh, there was one kitchen just for forks, one kitchen just for <laughs> frying pans, you know, <laughs> instead of having you know, one big kitchen with all the utensils in it. That in and of itself is is very problematic. And I'm just recently going through this effort at our organization where we're trying to unify the data silos. Many times these data silos measure things in different way and have different elements of data. What are some other challenges that digital marketers today may face when they're looking at trying to pull these things together? Uh, the number one challenge that marketers face are acronyms. Uh, two of the ones that we have faced uh, recently, well, not one not so recently, one very recently, uh, one is HIPAA, uh, and the other is GDPR. And between those two, there are, as there should be, as there should be, significant restrictions upon what we can do with data, how we can use it, um, what we shouldn't do with it, how secure it has to be. Uh, and there are really good platforms out there that can help us manage that. Uh, for example, IBM's uh, cloud private for data uh, solution is a fantastic governance solution. Uh, it also costs as much as a small airplane. Yeah. Uh, so it, it, for a lot of marketers, it's, it's either not in reach or it's part of an overall deployment by an institution that you know could, could take a couple of years and nobody can afford to put their marketing on pause for two years while they unify their data. 
in a recent uh, keynote that you gave at uh, NEDMA, which is what the New England Direct Marketing Association, you talked a little bit about sort of the challenges of, of a CRM, and but but yet the the promise that a CRM can provide. Do you want to do you want to go a little bit into that? Well, the CRM really is and should be your database of record for who it is that you're trying to market to. Now, what's interesting and something that a lot of marketers don't, don't think about is that the more unique a piece of information is, the less useful it is for statistics, for data science, for machine learning. Right? So knowing your gender is a useful piece of information because I can build a model uh, for genders of you know certain genders if i'm trying to to determine like a health outcome or a marketing outcome or you know, whatever the case may be knowing your individual birth date not as helpful birth year maybe but birth date not a very helpful piece of information because there aren't that many people born on that exact month day and year so the good news is for marketers if we can get access to the data and have it be cleaned and have it be uh, you know, anonymized properly or de-identified properly, we can use it to build really good insights to set strategies and things and still be in compliance with all the you know, applicable laws and regulations. The tough part for a lot of marketers is that that is an enterprise-wide project. There's a sort of a seven-step hierarchy on the journey to being able to use these advanced technologies. And that data part is the first part, and it's the part that takes the longest. You know, Most organizations, 70 to 80% of their project time is going to be on that data stage. Probably the most critical, the one you have to put first on the list, so to speak, right? But but it certainly slows down the process um, and implementation. Now, you mentioned seven stages. Do you want to walk through the other uh, six? Yeah, absolutely. So you have your data, and that's the first part. You got to find it. You know, it is the raw materials from which you're going to do everything. The next step is the analytical stage, which is to help your organization become data driven. There are a lot of marketers, as we were referring to earlier, who you know that's the way we've always done it is is sort of their their modus operandi, which is not a great way of doing things. So being analytical, having KPIs that are meaningfully connected to your business, having business goals that are measurable, all that good stuff is stage two. And it, because if an organization doesn't value the data and doesn't understand its importance, there's no point in continuing. The third stage is the insight stage. And this is where you have to build qualitative research capabilities. That means things like focus groups, customer advisory boards, consumer surveys, practitioner surveys, uh, you know, the, the, the magic circle, payer, provider, patient, getting data from all those about why they made the decisions they make. Why did you choose this hospital? Is it because your, your insurance covered it or you're staying in the, the same network that your physician is in? Why did you make the choices you make? Analytics is really good at helping us understand what happened, but it's really bad at helping us understand why we need that qualitative research capability. So that's stage three. Stage four is process automation. Now, this is one where we call it stage four, but it really can, can be concurrent with pretty much anything except the data stage. Process automation means helping you, sell, you save time. Uh, and that means thinking algorithmically, how do I solve a problem permanently as opposed to solving it over and over again? Real simple example. How many marketers tr have to schedule social media content every week or every day? You know, lots of people do. They read through all their articles. They, you know, they copy and paste links. They write, you know, clever, witty status reports and stuff. And they post these things to social media. That can take hours depending on, you know, the size of your organization and things like that. We automated that. I wrote my own software to, to, for myself because I was tired of doing that. And I solved the problem permanently. Now it takes me five minutes to get my, my basic news sharing posts done for the week. 
the same should be true for every marketing task that is low value. Can you automate it and free up your time? And organizations have to do that. That's stage four. So that they have, they free up their resources for the more advanced stuff. So that's step four. Stage five is data science capabilities. This is where you need to have to build data science capabilities uh, with three types of people. You need developers to help you get information out of all the systems you've got via various APIs or in some cases, just really ugly hacks, depending on how old your systems are. I'm looking at you, Epic EMRs. <laughs> uh, you need data scientists who can take that data, clean it, transform it, model it, test hypotheses and things like that, and create usable models. And then you need marketing technologists, people like us, who can take the outputs of those models and apply them to business uh, cases, business results and stuff. So that's stage five layer. The sixth stage is implementing machine learning. So now that you've got these models, start gluing them together, start teaching machines to build their own software from your hypotheses from your pro- and your proven uh, algorithms so that you know, your, your, your business scales much faster. And the seventh stage is you know, being an AI-first company where you look first and foremost for an AI-based solution to your problems. And there are very, very few of those companies, and you know their names, you know, Netflix, Amazon, Microsoft, Facebook, and so on. Those really are AI-first companies. There's not too many. That's the ladder you have to climb. And and, uh, like I said, other than the process automation part, for the most part, you do have to climb it in sequence to get to the ability to be uh, truly a, a machine learning and AI company. The way you outline that's very clear and very helpful for me to understand that as sort of a ladder. And by the way, I also love that you got in. We we at least try to do one epic dig every week in our podcast. I'm glad <laughs> you got it in for us today. The one thing I want to uh, I want to clue in on is that I just came from a healthcare conference, and AI was like all the rage. And a lot of people are walking around. They're like, "Oh well, AI is a silver bullet, and we're, we're just going to buy a piece of technology that's called AI, and we're all set to go." But you outline a very specific process that needs to occur and some prerequisites before you can actually start to really find the application of of those tools. When you see AI, and that is such a buzz term right now for us, tell us a little bit more about like some of the misperceptions maybe that might be helpful for our audience to understand. The biggest thing is that people don't understand what it is. And maybe we should just sort of set the table for that. We begin with math, right? All of this stuff is rooted in math, specifically stats and probability. Is this a cancerous cell or not? Is this a hot dog or not? What word is this kind of stuff? And that's where all this stuff begins. The second layer are algorithms. And that's software that we've been writing for, what, 50 years now. Actually, longer than that. Uh, you know, every time you open up a, a video game on your smartphone, that is algorithms at work. Every time you do an A/B test with your email marketing, those are algorithms at work. Where things change over is with what's called machine learning. Machine learning is a subset of AI because AI broadly means teaching computers to replicate human intelligence tasks. Machine learning is a reversal of the traditional software process. Typically. We write software and it spits out data, whether it's, you know, entertaining dancing Pokemon across your computer screen or whether, you know, it is a printout of your next appointment for your your primary care physician. That's the, the normal way software works. Machine learning software is the reverse. We give the machine a tremendous amount of data and some preset tools, and it writes its own software. It writes its own algorithms and models to help us predict or classify or cluster uh, the data that we've given it towards a specific outcome. And then from there, you can add and stack up machine learning techniques together to get what's called deep learning. And when people are talking about AI, 
they're thinking of very uh, consumer applications a lot of times, like you know Amazon Smart Assistant or Google Smart Assistant or uh, the Smart Assistant on their phones or self-driving cars, all of which use deep learning to to do what they do. But when you think about machine learning like that, you then start to understand because we're training it on data and it's building algorithms from that data. It is only as good as the data that goes in. It's like every other computing process, garbage in, garbage out. AI cannot make net new things appear that it that it, it doesn't know about. Uh, if you train a machine learning algorithm, uh, say on some natural language, and you feed it academic papers, it's not going to start writing comedy all of a sudden, right? <laughs> it's going to keep writing in the tone of academic papers. <laughs> so there, that's one thing is it, one of the misperceptions is that AI can create something net new that doesn't that it wasn't taught. Uh, completely untrue. The second thing, and I think what the most pernicious and dangerous is that is the belief that because the machine did it, it must be right. Again, garbage in, garbage out. Where you you see this uh, really show up is in biases and data. If you were, for example, to build an algorithm to predict health outcomes for African-Americans, 100% of your effort is going to be wrong if you train it on existing African-American healthcare data. Why? Because historically, African-Americans in America have been systematically disadvantaged for generations. Um, and as a result, all of the healthcare data is wrong. You will optimize only to the current conditions and not to the optimum conditions. And so we have to be very wary of, of AI. We have to be we have to be very thoughtful of it in its usage and we have to constantly be checking its outcomes to make sure that uh, it is creating outcomes that we want and that it is not creating outcomes we don't want. You know, that really speaks to the fact that uh, marketing individuals, professionals like ourselves, you refer to us as marketing technologists, but we're, in part, we also need to be data scientists in that we're, we're trying, trying to understand that data and help to overcome maybe the data bias, as you outlined, and other ways to really use these tools effectively. The fundamental principle you have to have in place first in order to make any of what you just said work, is that you and your company must have functioning ethics. Most companies do not, not because that they're bad people, because ethics are at best an add-on. They're like, you know, an HR training or something. Um, but it's, it's not embedded in the culture of the company. It's not embedded in the marketing. <clears throat> and as a result, you end up with people doing very unethical things because they don't know better, either because the technology isn't there or because they're simply you know, not trained to think that way. A real good example of this that I actually learned at, uh, from the insurance industry, the insurance industry has been doing what's called redlining for over a century, like saying, we will not lend or insure any you know, people who live in this neighborhood. That was typically, of course, always either minority or low-income areas. Yeah. So what happened was the government made a bunch of regulations saying, for example, if you're lending to someone who is African American, you cannot charge them different rates for the same conditions as you know a, a Caucasian American. You, you just that's illegal. Uh, I, this one insurance company I'm thinking of, I'm not going to name them, um, came up with was okay. Well, f we we can't charge differential prices. So what we're going to do is we're going to target our marketing to exclude those areas. So we're not going to mark even market to those people. Now think about this in your healthcare. Is it possible? And have you checked to see if the digital equivalent of redlining is occurring in your marketing? Are you in your efforts to, you know, target the most valuable demographic? Are you creating bias? And that's not even a machine learning question. That's a simple 
Like, who are you showing your ads to? These are real questions that that require that sense of ethics. And thankfully, in the medical profession, there you know medical practitioners in general tend to be more ethical than you know like insurance salesmen. But it's still something that has to be baked into our company overall. Once again, when we start talking about AI, ethics kind of creeps in. But I didn't realize the importance of that and that that example you gave about redlining. And myself, I've been kind of reflecting back. There could be inherent biases in the way we're targeting, but it could also be inherent biases through the channels that we use, too. Absolutely. In fact, just uh, yesterday, Edison Research released their uh, 2019 version of The Social Habit, which is a fantastic paper. Get it? It's totally free. Don't even need to register over at edisonresearch.com. They showed the demographic breakouts of individual social networks. Pinterest, for example, is 75% female and predominantly Caucasian. If you don't know that and you just assume that Pinterest Interest is you know, representative of the population as a whole, guess what? You have skewed data. So you need to understand the, the demographics, the, the psychographics uh, for B2B marketers, the firmographics of everybody you're marketing to, and then decide, is that bias material to our marketing or not? And if it is material, then you need to compensate for it. If it's not material, then obviously you don't have to worry about it, but you have to be always be looking for, is there something here that could screw up our marketing? Is there something that can expose us to liability in our marketing? This is before we even talk about machine learning. This is just the basics of, of your marketing data. You're, you're really painting like a, a very difficult challenge, you know, for uh, marketers today to overcome. Do you have any other tips or, or suggestions for marketers in terms of how do they, they stay on top of this? This is where there is, I think, a lot of hope in machine learning software. Uh, IBM, I should disclose, by the way, I'm an IBM champion, which means I'm not paid by them, uh, but they do give me T-shirts and stuff <laughs> for studying their products and, and learning how to use them. There's a new product called OpenScale. It's part of the Watson's ecosystem that you give it your data and your machine learning model, and then you define your protected classes. Like you define, for example, gender is a protected class. You may not vary. You know, machine, as you build your model, you may not vary from 50-50, right? You may not vary from that. Uh, if African Americans in your area of the population are seventeen point eight percent of the population, you specify it as a protected class. You say, machine, the outcome for this category of people should not be statistically different than for, say, uh, Latino Americans, right? And then the machine, as it builds these models, will enforce fairness on your data and on the models to help keep biases from creeping in. And it does it in some really interesting ways. It will flip, for example, like if, if your data set is skewed, say 75% male, it will actually go in and randomly flip the bits for you know a third of that to, to bring it to 50-50 to, in order to balance the model out. So I see as long as people are thinking about it and they're using reputable systems and reputable software, um, I see great hope in, the, in machines being able to create fairness, in, especially in cases where data sets have been societally or structurally unfair. It's interesting. You painted a picture where machine learning can cause a lot of challenges to the healthcare marketer, but at the same time, the same tools or maybe similar tools, machine learning and AI, can help to right-size that challenge. That's kind of interesting. Absolutely. It, it, these tools are just like every other tool. It, it's who's using it. Like fire can burn down your house, but it can also cook a meal. Um, you know, a, a, a machete can you know free you from a jungle or or be used by a murderer. It, it's all in how the tool is used. No truer words have been spoken there, and and I think that you know with great power comes great responsibility, and that's really where we need to start shifting our our thoughts and efforts. Chris, I could talk to you 
for many, many more podcasts. I feel like, you know, even though I've been listening to you from afar, it's like I'm, I'm jiving with you 100%. Before we wrap up this, uh, this interview, a lot of people listening in, they may want to learn a little bit more about you online um, and other ways they could get a hold of you. We're going to certainly link to it in the show notes, but what are some of the best ways for them to, to learn more, hear more about your thoughts? If you're interested in AI specifically, as it applies to marketers, go check out the new book, AI for Marketers book uh, at AIformarketersbook.com. Really easy Uh to find. uh Um, And my company is trustinsights.ai. And that's uh, probably the best place to find out the kind of work that we're doing and whether or not we can help you fix some of the data problems that you've got. And you can find my personal blog and stuff at ChristopherSPenn.com and our podcast at marketingovercoffee.com. We'll definitely put all the links in the show notes. I really appreciate the insights. And if you're up to it, I'd love to have you back on at maybe a future date to talk a little bit more after I download your book, that is. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, always happy to talk about the stuff and things are changing so fast. And we didn't even cover natural language generation. Maybe we'll save that for the next episode. Okay, you got it. That's a deal. Really appreciate it. Thanks again for being part of the show. Really, really appreciate having that conversation. Thanks for having me. Hi. This is Bobby Ratu, Storyteller. I would like to invite you to check out my show called Intersection Podcast, a collection of stories involving healthcare, public policy, and social issues. Intersection is an opportunity to recontextualize stories into a broader viewpoint, breaking away from a short tweet, social media video, a status update, and diving further into longer-form conversations surrounding great storytelling. Search for Intersection Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or go to intersectionpodcast.com to subscribe. I hope you'll join us. Wow, Reed, that was a really cool interview. It's kind of weird to talk to someone that you I've been listening to for well over a decade now on, on a podcast itself to be actually on the other side of the interview with him. That was really cool. Absolutely. It's always, uh, I, I hope somebody says that about us one day, but I'm not going to hold my breath. So I'm not going to have any bias around that. <laughs> but that's the Reed Smith bias. That's right. Yeah. Or the marking over coffee bias or something like that. No, that was great. I'm, I was glad you were able to get him and uh, get him on the show. So that was, uh, that was a fun listen. Well, um, before we close out the show, Reed, we typically uh, talk about some of the things that are happening next for us. So you want to quickly talk about some of our conferences? Yeah, absolutely. So you're going to be uh, there in Chicago in uh, towards the end of July, right? That's right. I'm going to be at the Strategic Marketing for Healthcare Conference. It'll be at the end of July. I'm going to be speaking about how to map the customer journey to your digital solutions. So uh, it's going to be an interesting presentation. And that promises to be a good conference. We'll have a link in the show notes. Now you read, you're going to be at uh, Shishmid, right? Absolutely. So in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, uh, just after Labor Day, September the 8th through the 11th is the ShishMed Connections 2019. So again, always a great conference. They uh, move it around the country this year. It is in Nashville again, September 8th through the 11th. Awesome. And then you and I are both going to be at the 2019 Mayo Clinic Social Media Network Annual Conference. That's October 22nd and 23rd. In Rochester, Minnesota, good old Rochester. That's right. We'll uh, we'll each be uh, speaking and doing a little bit of training, workshop type stuff, and uh, also going to have the podcast there. 
Yeah, we're going to record live in front of a studio audience, or over. I guess we're going to record it over lunchtime, so people are a captive audience, maybe. That's right. That's right. <laughs> studio audience. Probably not in a studio. I don't know. You never know. You never know. So you'll have to come to find out. And then rounding out the fall conference season is the Healthcare Internet Conference, which happens uh, around this time every year, which is November the 4th through the 6th this year in Orlando, Florida. So it's Healthcare Internet Conference. HCIC, some people like to call it, November 4th through 6th. Uh, well, very cool. This has been a, a great episode, something a little bit different, and uh, I think something that uh, is at least kind of put me on the alert as well. Touchpoint.health is the website. Uh, be sure to rate, review, subscribe, check out the other shows on the network, and uh, we appreciate all the support. And before we get out of here, maybe a, a couple of recommendations. What, uh, what do you have today? Read last Friday, I found myself doing something that two years ago I didn't think I would ever do. I actually paid money to go watch a podcast being recorded live. Oh boy. Here at the local university, one of the podcasts I listened to was uh, rounding the podcast itself. Uh, it's called Love It or Leave It. Uh, and it's kind of a fun variety political show. They were touring through uh, Minneapolis at the local university and my wife and I, we decided we're going to go watch this podcast. Me, uh, the two of us, plus 3,000 other people watched uh, the show. And we had our state senator on the show and our oh, wow. lieutenant governor. It was very interactive. I actually bought a t-shirt. Oh, boy. So my recommendation mm. for those of you who um, have never seen a podcast being recorded live is to go do that. Go see a podcast, your favorite podcast like maybe ours in at the Mayo Clinic <laughs> conference right. recorded live in front of an audience and be in the audience because it's a lot of fun. You get caught up and it's just kind of cool watching a, watching a show being made on stage in front of you. Absolutely. So we should have merchandise. That's what I'm hearing. So look for, look for merch in right. uh, Rochester. So there you go. <laughs> I'm going to recommend uh, a piece of technology. Chris and I have talked a lot about kind of the different, uh, actually we've done a presentation on it, on the different hardware, software, things like that that we use to record the podcast. I am actually trying out a microphone for the first time. Maybe I shouldn't recommend this. Maybe other people should tell me how it worked. But anyway, I'm going to still recommend it. I'm using it for the first time today, but uh, we have been big proponents not just us, but other other show hosts on the network also use so the Blue Yeti, which is a pretty popular podcasting, uh, even voiceover microphone. And we've used it when we've done different conferences. And of course, Chris and I both have one that we use independently when we record this show. I actually got the Blue Yeti Nano, which is a smaller, physically smaller sized version of the traditional Yeti that's been around for some years. It's really cool. There's not as many buttons on it as the uh, as the full size Yeti. The directional pattern that you can choose. There's not as many of those. It doesn't have a mute button. You have to use some software on your computer to change the gain and a few things like that. But from a size perspective, portability, things like that. Uh, and from what little bit I played around with it, it sounds like the sound quality is is really good. So anyway, the Blue Yeti Nano my recommendation that's awesome i'm looking to get the full collection do you think that they'll um, release other versions like the blue yeti microphone xs yeah is the yeah the blue yeti micro there'll be several uh, you know the blue yeti max <laughs> you know things like that 
So, um, yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, very cool. Great, uh, great recording. Uh, good to always be on the line. We'd love to hear from you. Reach out, Twitter, LinkedIn, whatever's easiest for you, even through the website. Give us some feedback on how we're doing, who you'd like to hear on the show, what other topics you'd like to hear us cover. And uh, we'll do our best to do that. So uh, for Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.